This podcast was recorded on the Wajak land of the Noongar Nation. This land was stolen and never ceded. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians and elders past and present, and we acknowledge the power of truth-telling and voice in preserving the oldest living culture in the world. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Clea. And I'm Ava, and you're listening to the Bimbo Industrial Complex. How are you today? I am just feeling so happy because my belly is full of continental roll. What mm-hmm. about you? Mm-hmm. I feel strangely exactly the same. Yeah. Clea and I, we went out and did some field work because mm. that's what journalism is about. Pod- it's kind podcasting. Of, you've got to get that like pounding the pavement, real like beat reporter vibe, I think. Mm. So I can insert... Uh, some shonky audio of our trip to the restore. Mm, but we really, yeah. we encountered quite a cast of characters. Mostly men. Mm. But we saw we saw a priest. Well, he was like the Greek Orthodox yeah, yeah. priest. And we also saw a lot of cops. And it just sounds like the start of a joke, you know, like a, a priest, priest and 50 cops walk <laughs> into, into a deli. Restore. Yeah. Um, and a dog, like a poodle that was on its last legs. <laughs> Truly. And it just was drooling from mouth to floor, like one long line of drool. It was really upsetting. Yeah. And we had our, we had the ambiance though of like the Italian men smoking cigarettes and drinking espresso. So yeah, it felt like we were in Italy. It really bit. did. It really did. So balsamic and olive oil things, but I've already bought like, you know, the things with the like two. Yeah. Oh, these wow. panettones are so nice. Chocolate, mascarpone, yum. Where are the tickets over there? Yeah. You know the sandwich is going to get when I'm priest. Yeah, probably from a Greek church. Damn it, we missed 69. <laughs> Only just. What's the point of it? Yeah. This. Oh, shit. Your first, I think. Uh, I'm stressed. Yeah, but the scary ladies in here, so it's kind of fine. Yeah, no, it's like What if one day you met the love of your life and they had egg? I mean... It's better than eating board eggs on their own, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Should we Bella call Bella Hadid? Bella the best, no? Should I? No. Should we call Bella Hadid? <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so sweaty. I'm so sweaty. Can you get like full size of everything to add? Yeah, why not? Oh, cray cray. Oh, am I going to get artichokes as well? Oh, I have the shorty. Sorry, guys. The audio is so bad. 
mind, but in case you're wondering, Clea gets a mix me on crusty white and she has provolone dolce, she has melanzane and capsicum and she has sweet mustard relish and green tomato pickle and I get salad on crusty white with provolone dolce, half serve olives, full serve melanzane, sweet mustard pickle, just in case you like felt like shouting us a Conti one day. I feel like you can tell a lot about a person based on their Conti roll order. Anyway, back to the So, I guess on to our hot girl Rex. Do you have yeah. Rex You today? go first because I haven't thought of mine yet. Um, my bimbo Rex this week, normally I hate TikTok skits. They really upset me. Mm. But today... Uh, I'd like to recommend my friend Remy. Remy, the French exchange yes, uh, So I don't know if you've seen this. Clear and I can't stop doing this fucking Remy accent. It's really embarrassing. <laughs> um, and basically, I, I need to go and find what the guy's name is. Do you, do you have it handy? Um, no, let me find his TikTok though while yes. you're describing it. And he basically has this skit where he has this elaborate French character named Remy. Remy. And it um, makes no sense because... It's like that feeling when you have a French exchange student in your class. And it's like, I've had French exchange students in my class. None of them have ever behaved like this Remy man. Uh, but for some reason, it's just so funny. And he'll be like, class, class, okay, I'm exam, I'm ready. <laughs> I am studying. I'm studying. Who is studying? Um, and there's like other characters like Linda. He's like his enemy in the chew. And his enemy. His enemy. <laughs> and Linda is like kind of sneaky linking with Jason. And he'll be like, Linda, who are you texting? Oh, it's Prof. Profess. <laughs> Excuse me, Prof? His name is Simon Hennessy as well. Simon Hennessy, yeah. We'll post, we'll post a copy. Um, so yeah, that's my bimbo rec. Do you have a bimbo rec? My bimbo rec is just... The Whisper app, and you have probably seen us post some truly unhinged photos with just like that white text with the black outline. It is just, it makes anything funny. It's just so, so funny. And people can respond with their own whispers or with messages. So you obviously get like a lot of like sugar daddy, sugar yeah. baby ones, but like you also just get the funniest responses and. I just can't recommend enough. And the actual ones that people post, because it's meant to be a place where you like post secrets anonymously. So like some people are actually posting like crazy secrets about their lives, which is also just funny in a totally different way. Yeah. Oh. I'm really addicted to the whisper app now. Yeah. And well. Ava and I love like looking on nearby and just knowing which ones are in. Yeah, each I, I can I look through it and I'm like, oh, oh that one's definitely Claire's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's just that's taken up a lot of my time recently. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. What about your academic rec? My academic rec would have to be Scott Ludlam's new book. Okay, so Scott Ludlam disappeared in 2017. That was my Truly. Uh, I remember exactly where I was. I fell on the kitchen floor. What was even his second I'm sorry, being a dual citizen with New Zealand does not count as being a dual citizen. I'm like scarred by this whole thing. But anyway, he's come back and he's written this beautiful book called Full Circle. And uh, it's about climate activism and it's just a really beautiful way of explaining it without... um, of climate doom, without it being like claustrophobic and distressing. Like it's so prosaic and beautiful like for example he talks about like 
carbon emissions in this metaphor of like chess so like the man who invented chess the queen was like how do we pay you for this and he was like put one coin on the first thing put and two coins on the it. next and the queen was like that's not that many coins but it actually turned out to be like sixty thousand coins or whatever mm. so and like there's a lot of beautiful analogies each chapter has an epigraph and if you know me you know i mm. fucking love an epigraph i put epigraphs on all my uni assignments because i just can't resist the aesthetics of the epigraph but yeah what's your no he's landed on his feet yeah it's a really nice book i haven't finished it but even if you're like a little bit politically opposed to Scott Ludlam, I think it's still quite a lovely book. Yeah. What about you? What's your academic rec? Love it. This is really just the most basic thing, but doing the New Yorker trial subscription, so worth it. It's like $15 for 12 weeks or something. And I obviously have a reminder in my calendar telling me to cancel it. Do you get a tote bag? You, I think you do get a tote bag. I yeah. mean, I already had one. Um, of course but it's just like it's so good because a lot of the articles also are quite timeless so you don't feel like you have to read them all Mm. within the week so you can like bank them up read them later my favorite bit is the crossword I just really enjoy it Um, there's something about it like I love doing my little New York Times mini on my phone but there's something about having a written crossword and like asking people to help you with it and stuff there's something so romantic about like sitting over the breakfast table and like doing crossword yeah i just i back it really hard and there's a lot of like fun interesting pop culture stuff like there was a a really good article about like eleanor rigby like the song paul mccartney talking about like the process of writing it and i was like you never really hear from paul that much so Mm. but i like a new york times paywall full stop after new york times thing has stopped working Mm. so if anyone has like hacks on how to get into the paywall I'll just give you my login details. (laughs) I'm still on the student price and I feel like I will be forever, so. Yeah. That's like when my Crikey membership ran out and I was like, no! (laughs) But I'm like, not going to pay for it again. Obviously not. The day my one search for like academic articles runs out, that's going to be a a tricky day. Low-key just have to stay enrolled in uni for the rest of my life so I don't lose institutional access to like journals. Like imagine paying like $8 to read a journal article every time. I don't even be reading them. I'd no, I'd be, be reading the them. abstracts. Yeah. Crazy. So crazy. Shout out to the institution. <laughs> Shout out to the libraries, you know? Yeah. Maybe putting in the hard work and not getting the recognition. So, oh, actually, the life hack. I just found out you can become an alumni member of the UWA library. No way. Which means you never lose your thing. But I don't know how much access you have to certain things, but... Okay. Yeah. I like low-key need to do that because I'm still using my old UWA login to access past papers from UWA. Yeah, obviously. So yeah. I still do that all the time. Or use my like student email for things. I'm not a student, but yeah. it doesn't bounce back. So Exactly. So very exciting. Today. Big topic to discuss. Something so controversial yet so brave. So- anyway, today we're talking about <laughs> Today we are talking about something very important and very interesting and very timely, I think, in Australia especially, and that is multiculturalism. Mm, The complexities of Australian multiculturalism, what it means to be in a multicultural society, defining multiculturalism and whiteness Mm. and immigration in Australia. 
so exciting. Lots to get into. So Clea has a little bit of a history lesson yes. she can take us through. I just thought I'd go through a little bit of like the history of immigration and kind of like multicultural policy in Australia. So obviously like we do be a nation of immigrants. My ancestors do be the original boat people. We stole this land um, just to acknowledge all of that. So basically in the late 1700s, all the little whiteys came and established their convict colonies here. Um, but then there wasn't really that much uniform kind of like immigration policy until 1901 when um, we federated as a country. So until then, it was kind of like a free for all because Australia was just a massive island prison. So it was like whoever wanted to come here could. So there was like a really big wave of Chinese um, migration to Australia in the 1850s with the gold rush. Um, and so that kind of thing. So there was quite like free um free migration here in the beginning of or in the beginning of colonial times I should say so then in 1901 was when the white Australia policy um was instituted Wait, 1901 yeah from the beginning from the beginning and it wasn't fully repealed until 1971 Bruh. no 1973 Bruh. um <laughs> and I was writing an essay once when I was talking about the white Australia policy and I was like oh, I'm talking about this so many times I need to abbreviate it but the acronym is WAP. So obviously I couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, so the white Australia policy was literally just that. It was like, we do not want people who are not white coming to Australia. But um, who was white was defined very differently then. So basically, who would not have been white? Like European migrants, mm -hmm. which is now like considered to be like part of whiteness in society. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting, like, because part of the, like, immigration was, like, a language test. Mm -hmm. um, and so you had to, like, prove that you could speak English a particular way. Um, and, like, they were often rigged. Like, the tests were rigged against, like, um, particular migrants. So people of certain descents had less likely chance than people of more, like, white-presenting, like, mm -hmm. Caucasian-presenting European descent, which is really interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. So... It was very discriminatory against like Mediterranean people, so um, like Greek and Italian people, but also against Irish people. Yeah, Irish people used to be non-white, which is just crazy to think because um, yeah. they do be the most white. Like I blame my Irish ancestors for the fact that I burned so easily in the sun. So yeah. very interesting. And so this kind of continued um, throughout both world wars and... Um, People, immigrants who weren't considered white had to be registered with the government as aliens. And so a lot of these people were also like interned during World War II, which is something really weird to think about. Mm. It really was not that long ago. And like, what reason did we have? We were not that involved in the war whatsoever. Like, yeah, just like the whole irony of like, and this will come up, I think, quite a bit is like the whole irony of this nation of like people living on stolen oh unceded un like illegally acquired territory mm -hmm. then suddenly deciding that by virtue of their invalid sovereignty that they can control who comes in and out of this country i know because you know they're just quaking in their boots that someone's going to do the same thing to to them yeah. that they did to the indigenous people but yeah. 
Yes, interesting. Um, and then kind of post-World War II, Australia realised that it had to populate or perish was the mm. official like slogan during this time. Ew. So they started to um, like repeal parts of the white Australia policy and let in a lot more immigrants. So in particular, there are a lot of Italian and Greek immigrants who came to Australia after World War II. Mm-hmm. And, and Lebanese, then, mashallah. Yeah. <laughs> and then there were also um, during like the 70s and 80s, there was a really open policy. We accepted a lot of refugees from East Timor and from Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And that's kind of when this policy of multiculturalism was officially adopted. So now it's something that we kind of like, I feel like hear about all the time. You know, when you're a kid at school, you have those like Harmony Day, Diversity Day, all those kinds of things. And we always hear about how we're such a multicultural society. So that kind of originated in the 1970s and is still um, kind of part of official government discourse today. But since the 1990s and especially post 9-11 is when there was kind of more of a switch to the uh, protectionist, shall we say, approach to immigration. So that's when we got things like uh, stop the boats and offshore detention really became like a a major policy issue. Um, And there were lots of like um, kind of precipitating factors that led to these policies and a lot of like things that were really overblown and exaggerated so one of those was the child children overboard issues so this was during early days of john howard's presidency like late 90s or early 2000s and basically the government pushed this false narrative that asylum seekers coming to australia on boats were throwing their children overboard so that they'd like get medical care and be able to come into Australia. Um, even when the government knew that that was like totally untrue yeah. and they kind of used it to um, justify their immigration policy and get John Howard reelected. So that's just like one really controversial example of kind yeah. of how um, refugees and asylum seekers have been weaponized. That like uh, 2001 election Mm. like was just terribly like political timing where there were so many like big immigration incidents that led up to Mm. like that like support so um for example like the child overboard there was another ship where this um swedish tanker like rescued like like 200 asylum seekers yeah it was at the tampa the tampa and instead of sending like there were like pregnant women unconscious on the ship and there were people like threatening to jump overboard if they didn't get let into like australian given medical Mm. um attention and the first people that australia sent onto the ship were not doctors or uh, medical staff or you know social workers they were the, the army basically being like you need to get out of here which is like kind of foreshadowed or like underpinned our immigration policy ever since then. Yeah. And so now we're at the stage where we have a lot of offshore detention going on, really heinous conditions. Like I can't believe that there was that bill recently where they were trying to stop people in offshore detention from having mobile phones. It's just like so against every fibre of human rights, international human rights law, basic human decency. And the way the government can justify it is like, well, we're allowed to detain people for a protective purpose, Mm -hmm. like how you would detain um, 
like people who were sick in quarantine or people in like um, mental health institutions but like so they're saying like it's not punitive their detention but I just don't understand how it's not punitive when there's like children sewing their mouths shut and like people self-immolating like yeah it's disgusting and it's just it doesn't even make like you know liberal party is meant to be the party of like economic rationality but it doesn't even make sense in that regard but you know that there was the case of the that family from Sri Lanka um, who were Tamil last year and they were literally the only people being kept in the detention center where they were and like the community where they had been living were all campaigning for them to be able to live amongst the community become citizens and that kind of thing and yet the government was paying like millions of dollars a week to keep this facility open just to detain them. And kind of when they were asked about it, the excuse was, oh, well, it needs to like, you know, disincentivize people from from coming to Australia. It's like, do you really think people are going to like leave everything they have, like get on a boat or some other kind of like very, you know, unsafe transportation method to come to a country where they've never been like just for the hell of it like you don't need to worry about encouraging people to do that people are not going to do it unless the quality of their lives is really really Mm -hmm. bad Mm -hmm. for sure anyway 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 never forget that if you're living in australia today most of us are boat people so exactly something to think about yeah but anyway on to how I suppose we kind of, as a society, conceptualize multiculturalism. Mm. We just, we hear a lot about it, you know, but we kind of still do be racist. Yeah, like it's always a very politically convenient position for uh, the government to take, like, you know, Australia's a beautiful multicultural society. Look at me, Scott Morrison, I'm cooking mm. my. Shankan Curry on the barbecue question mark listening to Desi hits on Spotify while I detain Tamil. Oh no. And also putting meat in a dish that's traditionally made for like a vegetarian festival. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so a lot of studies have shown that Australians are like quite positive towards the idea of like multiculturalism Mm -hmm. and immigration generally. Yeah. So this was studies between 1995 and 2003, so a bit old, but showed that around 78% of people agreed that immigrants make Australia open to new ideas and culture, and between 70% and 80% of people express support for multiculturalism and immigration, and that's kind of been consistent since about the 1980s. So it's kind of something that, you know, like people are pretty open to, but I suppose our major parties have just like terrible immigration policies. Mm. So a lot of people don't really get to express that when they vote. Yeah, for sure. Mm. <laughs> I'm just having it so water, water break. Yeah, like in that, um, like Rudd, uh, Gillard government, they had these like multicultural uh events and like multicultural like i can't remember what they were called like symposiums or something Mm. but then it's like your immigration policies are just as bad like the political party like malaysia solution like all those awful things Yeah. yeah so it's something like very interesting to think about i think it's because like we haven't really been proposed from our government like better ways to 
like welcome immigrants or decide, you know, who gets to come to Australia. So everyone kind of, I think, is just a bit apathetic about it. Like we kind of just see it as a default. Yeah. Whereas the reality is like so many other European countries take in like way, way more uh, migrants than um, like than Australia. Mm. Yeah. And even other countries in the Pacific region. Yeah, exactly. And we still do see, although like, again, most people are pretty like would never call themselves racist, but there is like a lot of dog whistling in among our politicians and even in pop culture, like especially since the beginning of COVID, it's yeah. provided kind of like an excuse to be really, really discriminatory to people of Asian descent. Yeah, which is like it manifests like um, I know when I was living in Canberra, there was like actual hate crime, violent events happening to um, like Asian people. And I'm sure the same things were happening like across Australia as well. So it's really upsetting that like um, instead of condemning this violence, the government knows that it's going to get like more votes by taking hardline stance on immigration mm-hmm. and um, anti-multicultural, even though it wants to like benefit off of those. Yes. Yeah. And you also see it with like foreign pol- pol- foreign policy that's not necessarily related to immigration like all the kind of like tough on china stances Mm. are of course you know the chinese government commits a lot of human rights abuses um also chinese government please don't come for me um and you know there are obviously a lot of issues with the way that like china is governed but the kind of extent that it's taken to where it's just like the whole country is being painted with one brush and that you shouldn't trust people mm. from China and that they're all like just being puppeteered by the government like well the irony is look in your own backyard yeah like I don't it makes no sense that Australia claims to be this bastion of human rights in the Pacific when like we're last on climate change last on immigration policy yeah like we have prison camps too <laughs> Sorry about it. Speak on it. Speak on it. But yeah, I suppose one reason why people might not be so open to like having a lot of different cultures or people expressing their culture is perhaps the idea that it could like jeopardize national unity Mm. or the idea Mm. of like the Australian identity. Um, Do you think that's valid? No. (laughs) I think it's very noticeable when you're in a place with low levels of like ethnic and migrant communities. Mm. I noticed like living in certain places (laughs) that where there was that majority like white people like it doesn't feel the same, you know, not not to fetishize those communities and things, but it's like there's so much more of a level of community I find um, where there's a little bit more ethnic diversity. Mm Uh, and certainly no restores in Canberra. So, yeah. I agree. And I feel like that idea of having like national unity and a really strong Australian identity kind of affects how a lot of Australians see immigration multiculturalism as well. Mm. Like there's this expectation that, you know, people should integrate or assimilate and that's when they become true Australians. Like, you know, when they speak in a really ochre accent or when they play footy or yeah. like cook a barbecue, that's what kind of makes them Australian. So it's kind of say, it's kind of that almost like, oh, I'm not racist because I'm colorblind thing. It's like, it doesn't matter what you look like, but you still have to behave mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. exact same way as us. Yeah. Um, which 
isn't really actually that tolerant. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's this po- what's this post multiculturalist nonsense clear oh yeah this was just when scomo was like i don't know he was like the shadow minister for immigration or something and he's like we're in like a post multiculturalist society like we don't need to think about multiculturalism because like we've moved i suppose like move past because the world's so globalized or whatever right, and it's right, like right. we're not we're like we're never gonna live in a post multicultural society the way we're never gonna live in a post racial society really yeah or like you know as like a post gender society yeah. it's always probably going to be some sort of consideration mm. um and it's a bit reductive to act like everything doesn't just matter fixed yeah. yeah especially when like something like more than half of Australia's population has at least one parent born overseas or is wow. born overseas so like statistically like it is a multicultural society yeah it's just like whether those cultural values are like accepted or demonized by you know certain politicians exactly yeah and i think because people come from such like a wide array of places to australia it's really like it can be quite fragmented at times like you know in countries with like in the US, they have a lot of immigrants who speak Spanish, for example, so yeah. that they can, I mean, US multiculturalism is a whole nother thing, but you know, they have a really good Spanish education in schools and that in a lot of schools. Um, whereas because, you know, we have such a diverse community of people, which isn't something that is bad at all, but like the government hasn't really worked out how to address that. Yeah. And so it's kind of just the like, everyone just needs to be integrated everyone needs to assimilate and yeah. so we can just all be the same yeah and that same being like white hegemonic male yeah. Yeah. blah 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 so i guess i kind of looking a little bit deeper um a lot of times you'll hear about this idea of like whiteness expanding whiteness because like when my mum should come to this country. She, like, they were considered, like, non-white, whereas mm. now, like, I think a lot of people would consider Lebanese people or Italian people to be white. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to note two things here. Firstly, like, if you benefit from white privilege, like, you know, regardless of your ethnicity, that's something that needs to be acknowledged mm-hmm. and taken into consideration. And secondly, a lot of the research that I found is, like, from an American critical race theory perspective and I know that there's a lot of differences in opinions and attitudes between American race theory and Australian race theory uh, particularly in regards to like blood quantum and Mm. Aboriginal Australians and I'll put some links um, about like First Nations identity and blood quantum because that's not for me to speak about Mm -hmm. but basically like Australia those huge waves of post-war immigration in America were like largely like Mediterranean European migrants who Mm -hmm. were considered non-white at the time. And then over time, firstly, it became like safer to just identify within that assimilated white um, identity than to have your own separate cultural identity. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's more politically convenient for people to identify, like to be all lumped into white because Mm -hmm. it expands the power of the group. Whiteness. Mm-hmm. So uh, Matthew <laughs> uh, Jacobson, he is like um, like one of the key 
theorists or political science writing about this issue. And he wrote this book called Whiteness of a Different Colour. Um, and basically his central thesis in that was like whiteness is not like a, um, like a natural idea or like a racial idea. It's like a political and cultural idea, mm-hmm. how we tend to define uh, whiteness. And then there's like a whole bunch of other yeah research about that. Um, and then there's like, you can Google like a hundred thousand different ethnicities, like how Italians became white, mm. how Lebanese became white, how Irish became white. Yeah, it's literally just defining and redefining whiteness based on political imperatives. Like, yeah, and you know, people that's like people in the US, like, oh my goodness, you know, Hispanic people are going to outnumber us in the US by this year. It's like, no, you'll probably just integrate them, and you already kind of see the integration of some like hispanic communities yeah. into like kind of white movements in the u.s but I think of it. it's still obviously a really important like cultural and political phenomenon but there is actually no scientific basis to the idea of race um a lot more biological and like physical variation can be seen in people of like the same quote-unquote race than people of different races so like it's really important for us to not dismiss race and kind of like it's social um, and economic and it's very real impacts, mm. but it's not actually a real thing also. Yeah. This is the article. So it was school district decides Asians aren't students of color. So it was like a place in Washington state. Um, and they decided that the people who identified as Asian no longer, or who were of Asian descent no longer fit into that like socioeconomic gap, which is kind of like very, I don't see color vibes, like just ignoring the realities. Yeah. Um, And in some ways, like whiteness is anchored to, this is um, from Warren and Twine. In some ways, like whiteness is anchored to blackness in that like one is the main and the other is the other. Mm. So like because whiteness is so pervasive, it becomes invisible and therefore like the others that stand out in order to maintain that continual expansion and political mm-hmm. manipulation of whiteness, it needs to be anchored to an othering or like that kind of us mm. and them. Because you don't need to define it unless you have something to define it against. Yeah. And I think like, per- per- speaking from a personal perspective, like it can be a little bit like conflicting for me. Cause it's like European people, like, mm who move through the world and present as white, like Lebanese, Italian, et cetera, et cetera, um, benefit from that, obviously. Mm. But there comes at the expense of, like, negating or feeling removed from your cultural Culture. identity. So often I'll be like, I'm Lebanese. And people will be like, ha, 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 lesbian. And I'll be like, no. no. Like, <laughs> like the place. Like, like the place, you know, or um, obviously, like, I look ridiculously white. So, um, but, you know. It's interesting that, like, it's diff- it's such a thing now where, like, you know, in 1960s, I would not have made it through one day on Cronulla Beach. Yeah. And now... Uh, in 2006, <laughs> you probably wouldn't have also. Uh, and now, like, um, there's kind of this, yeah, politics of definition surrounding... Mm. Yeah. Like, you always see those posts and TikToks making fun of, like, uh, white girls having all these, like, flags in their Instagram bio. And it's like... 
I know a lot of people like who have been made fun of for that very thing. I'm like, well, their parents are immigrants. Like, yeah, like it's your cultural identity. Yeah, you know? and I guess it again comes back to that like assimilationist idea of like mm. not saying that people who say that white girls with flags and Instagram as assimilationist, but it's kind of that idea of like why are you trying to differentiate yourself from like the dominant like Australian identity? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Which I find you know very interesting, and I think also probably intensified a little bit where there's like less. Like in places like Sydney and Melbourne, where there's really big and um, connected like ethnic communities. Mm. In Perth, it's a little bit more dispersed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah, love it. So we're going to discuss what we think is the most important manifestation of multiculturalism, and that is food. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason why we were doing field work at the restore today was to eat our favorite thing, the continental roll. Do you want to give us a quick origin story? So allegedly the continental roll was invented at the restore, which was an Italian deli, still is, where they sold, you know, Italian meats and cheeses, um, bread, and tradies used to come to the restore, buy the sliced meat and the um, cheese and the bread, and then put them together in rolls. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, Mr. Ree and Mrs. Ree were like, why don't we just do it for you? Fast forward all this time and the resource now a cultural phenomenon beloved by all all stripes all stripes you know a lot of businessmen and tradies in town but mm-hmm. um we love the restore it's so good mm-hmm. it's like feels like a safe space of like wog tiles mm. and cultural still family yeah. owned and you can really tell like one time we went in there and it was someone's one of the employees birthdays yeah. and they're all like squeezing her cheeks and yeah. stuff so it's really sweet it's very sweet um and there's also like a lot of other food that kind of has come about that way in australia from like you know, um, people coming and kind of bringing their own culture and then adapting it to what they see like local tastes are. So one example would be the Halal Snack Pack or the Meat Box, yeah. um, which is a kebab shop favorite. So that's basically like, you know, taking hot chips, putting kebab shop like meat and sauces and all that kind of stuff on it. Um, you have stuff like butter chicken in the UK, which yep. was invented because white people don't like spicy curries. <laughs> um Basically, like, all food today also, like, that is Asian fusion. Blah, blah, is just... <laughs> I will never, ever forgive MasterChef for eliminating Sarah Chong and Poe. I can't remember uh, if they both got eliminated, but basically, head chef of Chin Chin, white man. Yeah. Apparently, curry expert, Malaysian curry expert, I think not. So he sets this curry for them. People mm-hmm. who have watched MasterChef know what I'm talking about. I, this boils my blood. So this white man comes in, Po Ling Yao and Sarah Cheong, mm-hmm. two absolutely incredible Asian chefs, cook this beautiful curry. And he's like, no, it's like too watery and like not right. Mm-hmm. No offense, but that's not like. That's not your place to say. Yeah. And I think Ava's really like touching on something <laughs> that's very important that kind of differentiates things like the conti roll or the meat box from this kind of like asian fusion phenomenon and that's who is actually like creating and cooking these things so like a lot of times it is like the actual you know people trying to bring their own culture and adapt it in a way Mm. that you know appeals to 
the Australian palette. I don't know. That could be argued as being kind of too assimilationist, maybe a bastardization of their culture. But then it's even worse when exactly all the a lot of the most successful people making a lot of these foods are not from those cultures originally. So that's yeah. really something to think about a lot of ethnic foods do only become like acceptable in the mainstream when trendy white people cook them yeah and the other thing is like people always ask like oh where can you go get good lebanese food in perth or where can you go get good you know ethnic food yeah and the thing is like yes like you can find like good ethnic restaurants but a lot of the times like people will just like cook and eat those things at home Mm. um so that's why you'll see a lot of like bastardized or you know, gentrified interpretations of <coughs> hummus club, like um, <laughs> ethnic foods. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's like that idea of kind of almost like the gentrification of food is something really interesting. I feel like it came up a lot during the Bon Appetit yeah. scandal that came out last year. Like, um, it Could was, you give us a quick screener on that? So it, it was basically like Bon Appetit was a really successful like food recipe, like website and magazine that also had a really successful YouTube Um, And basically it came to light that people of colour were being really discriminated against. Like they weren't basically allowed to be in any of the videos or if they were, they weren't being paid for it. And also kind of like upon deeper investigation, a lot of things would happen. Like um, writers of colour would kind of pitch recipes that were based on their families, kind of traditional cultural recipes, and then they would get rejected but then later they would find that like a white um, writer or chef who'd pitched like a similar but less authentic version of the dish would then have their mm. recipe kind of like yeah. um, put in the magazine and that kind of thing. So it's just a, like a kind of microcosm that demonstrates that we find things so much more acceptable when someone from a majority culture is like presenting it to us. Yeah, and I think from that as well, there was this story of this woman who like pitched like making shaolong bao and mm-hmm. like um all the steps and things and they were like well people aren't going to be able to make this it's too complicated and then in the next issue they published this like 24 hour lasagna or spaghetti bolognese recipe that like involved like all these ridiculous like steps and things and it's like mm. so you're telling me like one is like fine but the other one isn't you yeah know? and a lot of like <sighs> recipes and stuff i know like when cooking people will kind of be like oh this is such like an obscure ingredient how am I going to get this I'm like well actually if you just go to any Asian supermarket yeah they'll have that um like just because it looks like an unfamiliar name doesn't actually mean it's something that's like hard to find yeah exactly yeah um and I was also reading a really interesting um paper about this was about like a neighborhood in Amsterdam but it was kind of about the idea of like ethnic restaurants and neighborhoods becoming really trendy but then you know the people who are often like migrants or maybe like second or third generation migrants um getting kind of like priced out of those areas so kind of gentrification that is a lot to do with food yeah um so what this paper said is racial aesthetics have served as the central guiding principle in the transformation of the neighborhood from a dark space of grime crime and decay to the current space of hipness coolness and global inner city While being celebrated as a living example of a multicultural society in the inner city, we argued that the area embodies a multicultural reality in which white, middle-class residents and visitors are the prime occupiers of space and aesthetic organising principle of the neighbourhood's landscape. So it's basically putting forward the idea that, like, 
for, you know, for example, restaurants serving um, food from diverse cultures, for them to become successful, they need to make themselves appealing to like the white middle class majority. And that often involves like kind of, I suppose, um, diverting away from the traditional aspects of their culture because that's the way you're going to become like yeah. the most financially successful, not by, you know, making food for, say, other immigrants who are often um, like working class or don't have as much disposable income. So it sets up kind of like a twisted incentive system where appealing to, yeah, like the white palate and white taste is like the ultimate way to succeed in terms of like yeah. food. Exactly. And I think I've read a lot about like in, I'm sure it happens in Australia as well, but like in LA, like those big restaurants like Squirrel and stuff like have priced out and like gentrified like mm. um, traditionally like more ethnic areas and then also like exploited like ethnic labourers in mm. order to like present this idea of culture. But yeah. It's so sick. It's like in Australia, like Guzmani Gomez, the fact that... It was just fully started by two white guys who were like, yeah, we just like the sounds of those those names together. But like when you go in there, the people will be like, hola. So, yeah, it's very interesting. And it's very much represents, I think, like this very superficial level of multiculturalism mm. that we have. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, OK, like I'll, I'll eat a burrito or I'll eat dumplings. I'll eat Korean barbecue, but I'm I not won't. actually going to be yeah, anti-racist. Go to Dandenong, yeah. Exactly. Or like even, you know, like people will go to dim sum and then like look at the chicken feet and be like, oh my God, that's so disgusting. It's yeah. like, it's, it's all part of the same like culture. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, as you said before, the idea that like a lot of people actually just cook their own culture's foods in their homes. So kind of there's, I suppose, less of a demand for mm. like authentic restaurants and that kind of thing i think food as well can be a cultural experience that's often linked to like religion family yeah. kind of specific like national traditions or like the place where the dish comes from so using like seasonal produce or relating to like weather related traditions like you know soups that you would cook during a winter and stuff so i think there's a real like issue and this is with food or as in with any like cultural to with any cultural tradition, there can be an issue if we just kind of transplant mm. it to a new location with no context. Like, yeah. especially if we really like over commercialize it, is that kind of like an ethical thing to do? Yeah, if I'm sure there's like plenty of occasions where like I find this as well, where like someone will be doing like consuming cultural food at the wrong cultural time. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. yeah. So there's like certain things that are like particular to certain holidays and things like yeah. in Lebanese culture and it's like why are you doing that right now exactly yeah. so that was the thing with like Scott Morrison's curry why it was I mean other than just being like a bit tone deaf yeah. he was cooking a curry that is like traditionally cooked for like a vegeta Hindu vegetarian festival I think yeah it was Diwali yeah. I, think. I think the thing was that like D- Diwali is like a Hindu thing and Hindu religion is yeah. like vegetarian yeah yeah um and then he like just put chicken in it and he was like, look at me being so culturally hits. aware. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of things like when you do take them away from their culture, then it's like, 
should we should we really be not that we shouldn't be consuming it but yeah. that should we be consuming this without thinking about it yeah because i think people white people always want to throw the cultural appropriation bomb as hard and fast as possible because it's like a really convenient way to do cultural uh criticism without actually being actively anti-racist mm. um i think like flex mommy talks about this a lot she's like we pass a point of like cultural appropriation when are you actually just gonna like like, no one cares about the braids anymore. Like, we're, like <laughs> yeah. people are being murdered on the street, exactly. you know? Exactly. And so I think sometimes, like, people can, like, really lobby, like, these very harsh attacks about cultural appropriation when, in, in reality, like, there is an element of cultural appreciation to mm. those things. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I just wanted to uh, dog whistle to all my other girlies <laughs> with immigrant parents. <laughs> Um, on every season of MasterChef and probably every interview with every ethnic chef ever, and also if you have ethnic parents and ever brought ethnic food to school, you will know the stinky lunchbox story, which is like, oh yeah, this has happened to me. I think it's happened to like all my other ethnic friends. It's like you bring your like cultural food to school and you're like, I'm so excited. And then everyone's like, ew, what is that stinky shit? Yeah. And then you're like, mom, I want to have a sandwich for lunch tomorrow. <laughs> and I just think it's like perfectly sums up like the cognitive dissonance between like going to an ethnic restaurant and having lots of fun and like mm. eating that food and then like actually seeing like culturally authentic food and be like oh no like that is gross and stinky i know but then it's it's so different as well when different people are cooking it like my mum loves to cook and she is a very very white lady her ancestry.com proved that um but like she'll always be cooking like you know like middle eastern or yeah. italian or whatever dishes from lots of different cultures and, like, you know, everyone is always, like, willing to taste them and try them even mm. when it's, like, something really unfamiliar. Yeah. Because they're like, I trust this white lady. Like, <laughs> it's probably going to be good. My um, mum mailed me a container of marmol, which is, like, these Lebanese Easter biscuits. And, like, people would come over to my house and I'd be like, you want a marmol? And they'd be like, <laughs> that is crazy that your mum, like, mailed these to you. I'm like, you guys clearly don't have any ethnic people, like, around In you. Like, yeah, that's, like, pretty stock standard. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I'm so good. And there's this girl, I'm going to post the TikToks um, as well on her Instagram, but she makes the best TikToks. It's like speaking to white people, how they speak to POC. Yeah. And it's all just like, again, things that you wouldn't outwardly interpret as racist if you were maybe the one saying them or if you saw them. But when they're reversed, it's so funny. Like she pretends that she's going to a Bunning sausages and she's like, is this some kind of cultural event? I love how you guys have so much culture. Yeah. You know, it smells a bit funny, but like, I'm just so happy for you. Yeah, and it's, it's like just... that real fetishization of culture. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Being like, oh, can I, that's an interesting thing you're wearing on your head. Can I touch that? Like, so it's just, yeah, it's very interesting the way that we think we're maybe being super accepting, um, but we probably still have a long way to go yeah. in terms of multiculturalism. I don't think like we've quite found the line between pretending no cultural difference exists at all because that's yeah. not true. Yeah. And then pretending that we have like, you know, irreconcilable differences with people. It's definitely, yeah. definitely a sweet spot. For sure. I don't even know if I've, you know, reached it in my own life. Still working on it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a multicultural girl, so. You are a multicultural girl. Yeah. That's why I keep you around. <laughs> I can say that I have a Lebanese friend. <laughs> what the hell, Claire? I'm actually lesbian. <laughs> wow, double double whammy, double homicide. <laughs> double, damn, double homicide. 
Okay. Yeah, any final thoughts on Australian multiculturalism? Um, I just think, like, I'd probably say this a lot, but fuck the Liberal government. Um, Clear, are you trying to get us sued? I'm literally not trying, but I think I have so many lawyers in my family that it's kind of like, at some point I'm going to need to get a suit to get my money's worth out of that. Um, yeah. Nice. I'll finish with this nice quote from Chris Bowen, former Labor Minister. If Australia is to be free and equal, then it will be multicultural. But if it is to be multicultural, Australia must first be free and equal. Summed it up pretty well for a white guy. Really do be a psycho. <laughs> really do be a psycho. He might be Irish, actually. So, do you have a low stakes hot take for us? I do. Um, kind of a controversial one, but there is one way in which straight white men are superior to just everyone else in the planet, Uh in the planet, on the planet. And that's the way that they can wear shorts in any weather. Like literally I have been in snow and I have seen some skinny white legs sticking out of shorts. And I just think it's so impressive. It's baller. Like, I guess when the whole world like revolves around you, like, your homeostasis is just really good. Like, you don't need any help with your thermoregulation, you know? How could you say something so controversial yet so brave? You know what? I don't know. I'm sure I'm going to get so much backlash for this, but I want what they have. Yeah. I. Why are you wearing shorts? Like, there's there's no appropriate time to wear shorts. It's because they can. They simply... I'm so violently anti-shorts. On anyone. I'm anti-shorts on myself, but I like like it on other people because I'm like, yeah, I could never. So I want to see it on other people. Yeah. What about you? Okay, this is a hot one. This is a hot one. I'm about to upset a lot of people, I think. But jaywalking is just walking in a J. And I'm explain why. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, because you're upsetting me. Okay, cr- intersection, crosswalk, four things. This is hard to explain in an audiological medium. However, the you've got to walk, like, across the road. Yeah. That's legal. Yeah. Jaywalking, you would leave where you're supposed to go and walk in a J shape up to the opposite corner. No, it's just, like, crossing when you're not meant to cross. Like, even if you are crossing Then why is it called across... jaywalking? It has to be because you're walking in the why shape of a J. Why is it called kidnapping when you could kidnap an adult? That's abduction. Okay, let's settle this once and for all. J walking etymology. I maintain that it's because it's the shape of a J. But it's spelled, it's not even spelled like that. Shut up. (laughs) Okay, I'm wrong. (laughs) However. What is the actual etymology? It's from a, a J, which is an inexperienced person. Oh yeah, I just looked it up. J walking equals silly person plus walking. Silly people be walking in the J shape. Try and tell me any time you've ever jaywalked was not in that J shape. No, I always cross like diagonally jaywalking. That, but you're doing a J. <laughs> it's going straight diagonal. But it could be a J. <laughs> Anything could this be a This is the hill I'm going to die on. <sighs> Don't boo me. I'm right. Okay. Whatever helps you sleep at night. <laughs> 
Real bimbo fans know that jaywalking is. Jay it's okay that you didn't know how jaywalking was spelt though, because your <laughs> English is your first language, right? <sighs> it's Saliba. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cleon, I'm calling them hate crime police. <laughs> it's a crime, and I hated it. <laughs> Under 18C. I can say whatever I want. No, jaywalking is walking in the jay. Okay, okay. I agree to disagree. You know I'm right. That's why you're getting defensive. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Speak on it. (laughs) Say it louder for the people in the back. Jaywalking is walking in a jay. (laughs) I refuse to change my opinion. That's my opinion! <laughs> That's my opinion! <sighs> and with that, we'll leave it there. And scene. And scene. Enjoy your sandwiches, babes. Mebs. Tell the restore we sent you. Yeah. Get us a sponsorship. Yeah, we're so gonna tag restore in this post so we can oh, get yes. free sandwiches. Happy holidays. Bring on the panettone season. And we'll see you in two weeks. Ah, see you soon.